Did you ever think you were make it? I feel I'm supposed to take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to haters. How they run, homie, look what I become. I'm the, I'm the one. Okay, our guest today is Vivek Ramaswamy. Our topic today will be around ESG, which is a topic that a lot of people are talking about. Musk is concerned about it. Uh, there's this uh, uh, man who uh, uh, just, when you see his picture, how he speaks, just seems like a total sweetheart, the kind of a person you want telling bedtime stories to your kids. His name is Klaus Schwab, which <laughs> you, you think very highly of him. But our, our guest today has written two books, New York Times bestseller, He's written Woke, Inc., as well as Nation of Victims. Uh, an expert on this topic, I've been looking forward to this conversation because I think it is something that a lot of people don't know a lot about, and they need to be educated on this topic. So appreciate you for coming out. Thanks for having me, guys. Yes. Yeah. So tell the audience, if they don't know who you are, your background. Yeah, so my background in a nutshell actually began in science. I was a molecular biology undergrad at Harvard. I grew up in Cincinnati before that. Thought I was going to be a scientist. Ended up getting into the world of hedge funds instead. I did biotech investing Yep. starting in the fall of 2007. That was right before the 2008 financial crisis, by the way. So the hedge fund I worked for was in like Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short, all this stuff. So I saw I had a front row seat to the whole 08 crisis, influenced my views of capital markets immensely. I actually think 2008 was where the origin story of a lot of this ESG stuff began, but we'll come to that later. Okay. So anyway, I, three years in, I had this itch to study law and political philosophy because I'd been such a science guy that I told my bosses at the hedge fund I was just going to go to law school. I had a seat at Yale, thought I was going to do that for three years. They said, keep your job, manage a portfolio, do it from wherever you want in New Haven. I said, that sounded pretty good. So I kept my job and uh, went to law school those three years. Met my wife. She was my next door neighbor in med school. Came back. It was probably the most productive thing that came out of it. But I, I enjoyed the three years of, of thinking about some of the problems that informed my views in these books. Anyway, I came back to New York. I left my hedge fund job. Short stint in stand-up comedy. Did not work well. Uh, you know, that was, How short was it? What was it? About six months, okay. 10 shows. That's a good amount of like time. You know, yeah. Yeah, that was on the side while I was in the tail end okay. of, of my hedge fund job. Yep. And then that's when I woke up and said, all right, clearly I want to do something, something different here. Got my hands dirty by starting a biotech company. So I started a company called Royvent. It's a you know multi-billion dollar publicly traded company today. I uh, had the privilege of leading it for seven years as CEO. Uh, worked on a number of drugs. Five of them are FDA-approved products today. I founded another healthcare company along the way called Chapter. It's a private company doing well now. So that was my background as a healthcare entrepreneur. I ended up stepping down as CEO, and it's a long story that I tell in this book, but the long story short is I became a critic of this new trend of businesses having to take social stances that had nothing to do with their business. Mm -hmm. It actually landed at my doorstep, even at the biotech company I was running. There was demands to sign some sort of industry-wide statement condemning President Trump's policy on immigration. It you know, reached a fever pitch even within my company and, and like so many other companies across the country after George Floyd's death. I became a greater and greater critic of companies taking these social stands, but I realized that I wasn't actually going to be able to speak my mind as a citizen without that having a negative impact on the company. In fact, it is a longer story, but I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal in January of 2021, I want to say. Yeah, January 2021, when uh, 
you know, I, I made a case that big tech companies ought to be bound by the First Amendment if they were taking instructions from the government. It was a technical legal argument. But three advisors to my company stepped down. That was a wake-up call for me to say that, you know what, if I even want to speak freely as a citizen, I can do that. I can speak as a CEO but filter it through the lens of corporate self-interest. And I was at a stage in my career and the company was at a good, good enough place, et cetera, where I was able to make the decision to say I'm stepping aside. That's what led me to write that first book, Woke Inc., Enjoyed that enough that I wrote a second one. So that one came out about a year later. That was Nation of Victims. Traveled the country, done a ton of media. It was a totally different world from biotech. Mm-hmm. It's a totally different world. You know, been on cable television more times than I care to admit over the last couple of years. But then I started to get started to get weary about just complaining about this problem without doing something to address it. And so that's what led me actually to start about a year ago this new company that I'm leading now called Strive, which is competing with these large financial institutions by telling companies as a shareholder they got to knock it off with the politics, focus on your products, focus on your services, get out of these environmental and social agendas that you're pushing with other people's money and do it in a way that restores the heart of both capitalism but actually the part that's even nearer dear to my heart nearer and dearer to my heart is not just the fact that it, I hope it revives American capitalism, but I hope it's actually a revival of American democracy because it gets corporate elites and financial institutions out of the business of what voters ought to be deciding in a democratic society. So for somebody that doesn't know, can you uh, break down how uh, uh, ESG uh, was sold, meaning why did some people think this was a good idea and why do you think it's not a good idea? So, so the origin story of the modern version of it starts with the 2008 financial crisis. Okay, what happened in the 08 crisis? Actually, there's two things that happened in 08 that were really interesting in the back of the 2008 financial crisis. One was a mistake made by the Republican Party, which was to bail out the big banks. That was, I remind you, Hank Paulson, an alumnus of Goldman Sachs, who used taxpayer money to bail out Goldman Sachs under President Bush. That happened. And what happened in response to that was you had a left-wing backlash. By the way, I think that was crony capitalism all the way down. I was a critic of it at the time. I remain a critic of it today. There was a left-wing backlash that said, you know what, if that's the way you're going to behave, then we, Occupy Wall Street, want to take money from all of those wealthy corporate fat cats and bankers and redistribute it to poor people to help poor people. Mm-hmm. Agree or not, that is what they had to say. It was a coherent, it was a coherent response, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Now, Right around that time, a second trend was happening in, in sort of the political, socio-political life of our country. Barack Obama was elected as president of the United States. There was the birth of a new strand of the left. So not the Occupy Wall Street left, but a new strand of the left that said, mm, you know what? It's not quite economic injustice or poverty that we care about. Not just that. There's, there's the real problem that has to do with racism and misogyny and bigotry and climate change. That's a become a big one. The biggest. Now. Yes, the biggest, biggest, yeah. biggest one of all, right? I, mean, I, I think wokeism is one religion. Climatism is a religion that dwarfs wokeism by comparison. Mm-hmm. But, but anyway, they said this is, this is the sort of the new theory of the case. And what happened was that this was the opportunity of a generation for big business in this country, for Wall Street in particular. Because if you're Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street, it's a pretty tough pill to swallow, bitter medicine, okay? Right. The new woke stuff is pretty easy. You applaud diversity and inclusion, put some token minorities on your executive ranks or your boards or whatever, muse about the racially disparate impact of climate change after you fly on that private jet mm-hmm. in Davos. It's good work if you can get it. 
but they didn't do it for free. And that's what this whole ESG stakeholder capitalism thing is about. They made a new demand to the new left that says you look the other way when it comes to leaving our corporate power intact. And so it's this sort of arranged marriage, actually. My parents are from India. They had an arranged marriage. That, that was the good kind. You're like, I know kind. it all too familiar. Yeah. I get it. I mean, there's, there's. I, I didn't mean to like use that term yeah. in a negative sense. They had a good kind of arranged marriage. But this, this is, this is not an arranged marriage of love. Okay, this is, this is mutual prostitution. Each side gets something out of the trade, and the net result of that, the bastard child, was the birth of this ESG movement, the ESG industrial complex, this apologist model of capitalism, that says you have to advance these progressive agendas as a way of atoning for your sin in the 2008 financial crisis, but even more as a way of, if you can't beat them, buy them. And that's effectively the mutual codependent relationship between a progressive movement that used to hate big business, but instead got in bed with them. And together, you know, big banks, woke millennials get in bed, they birth woke capitalism, and they use that to sacrifice Occupy Wall Street, which they put up for adoption. So anyway, that's a little bit of the history of this game. What, why am I upset about it? Yes, Milton Friedman correctly said that this would make businesses less efficient and they would be less good at making widgets and then that shrinks the size of the economic pie and we're all worse off. And we all know that old school conservative, classical conservative, neolibertarian argument. I, I actually agree with most of it, by the way. But that's not what gets me going on this issue, okay? My concern was not that politics would infect capitalism, not just that, but that capitalism would infect democracy. Because what this worldview says is that the way you settle questions like climate change or systemic racism or whatever it might be is not the way we do it here in America, which is through free speech and open debate in the public square where every person's voice and vote counts equally. That was the bargain we struck in 1776. For better or worse, that's how we do it over here. But that we got to go back to doing it the way they used to do in the old world. Back in old world aristocratic Europe, where a small group of business elites and labor elites and church elites got together behind closed doors and decided what was right for the rest of society at large. And that's why I, I sort of try to educate people. This is not a Republican versus Democrat 2022 or 2023 issue. This is a 1776 issue, and it's a question of how you settle disagreements in a society. Is it as citizens with an equal voice through a democratic process? Or is it through some type of aristocratic monarchical structure where some guy named Larry Fink sitting on Park Avenue gets to use your money to tell you what kind of society he will create, even if it's one you didn't vote for? So I was watching this documentary. It's like a 90-minute documentary Bloomberg did. I don't know if you've seen it or not, where they're telling a love story. It's, it's, a, it's a different story than the one you're talking about. And they're telling a story about Robert Schwartz. If you can pull up Robert Schwartz, and Robert Zevin, just type in Robert Schwartz and Robert Zevin to just do the name. Don't even worry about the documentary. Just do Robert Schwartz right there, and let's see what comes up. Uh, 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 underneath Robert Schwartz, just write ESG. Right next to Robert Schwartz, write ESG. Let's see what pulls up. So there's a— uh, What was the second name, Zevin? Uh, it's that one right there. He died in 2006. That Wikipedia right there, go down. That one right there. Yeah, zoom in. Zoom in. So this is—he uh, was a U.S.-born economist and a stockbroker— he was an early advocate of socially responsible investing. He was also actively campaigned for civil rights uh, against the Vietnam War, the use of nuclear weapons. He actively participated in organizations such as American Veterans Committee, Americans for Democratic uh, Action, saying in 1989 he founded uh, Econ Economists Against the Arms Race, 
now called Economists for Peace and Security. So the story says how these guys originally felt capitalism was a problem and the right way of doing it is to force businesses to be socially uh, uh, conscious of what they're doing, to keep mon- uh, give money back. Obviously, they're very left on what they're doing. So the story was, there, you know, this is uh, uh, $30 trillion of money being invested back into the into people, $35 trillion being invested back into the world that we live in. And it again, it sounds very convincing, okay, where a lot of people are falling for it. I remember when we were selling our insurance company uh, and we were going with uh, folks at Hulahan Loki and we're sitting with buyers. Okay, you know the okay. process. You've gone through this yeah, before. And so we're sitting down. It's like, oh, so tell us your uh, – I'm like, so what does your company look like? Well, our hardest, biggest challenge we have is we have a 1,000 – investment bankers that work with us, but uh, uh, only 5% are African-Americans, 6% are uh, Hispanics, and we're really having a hard time with that. I said, oh, really? I said, you know, our DI score is this and this, this, that. And they're asking about the DI score, right? I said, okay, yeah, you know, we're 54% Hispanic, you know, we're 51% women, and, you know, the average agent is 34 years old. And you see, like, their faces. <laughs> Lighting their up faces probably. is like, oh, this could, uh, this is, so you guys have a very, so, and then they started talking, you know, uh, 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 how this could impact their DI score, the look on their face, they were more interested on what this is going to do, their DI score in the marketplace, That's right. than the investment. Oh, of course. Which and was completely supplanted. Yeah. It's a different kind of scoring system, right? right? I mean, it's like ESG scores go into your credit rating. That affects whether or not you can borrow more expensively right. or not, right? So, so a couple things going on here. Okay, so first, there was this socially responsible investing movement, and you described it perfectly. That exactly was the goal use capital as a lever to drive positive social change or what someone would determine as positive social change. The question they skip is, who gets to decide what is positive or not? If these are contested public mm-hmm. policy issues, right. that means they're contested because people, human beings, citizens, disagree about it. And we have to decide what's the way we work out our differences. Is it through force, including economic force, or is it through a process of debate in a democratic body politic? I thought we lived in the latter. Old world Europe, and actually, in fairness, by the way, I just want to say something to be fair about this. For most of human history, that's not how it's been settled. Okay? Right. This is a relatively new idea. I mean, it existed in ancient Greece in some sense. But in modern history, this is a relatively new idea. You actually have most questions that were settled through force, either physical force or through other elite intervention. So this American thing we got going on here, this is a departure from history, but that's the experiment that I signed up for, or at least my parents signed up for. I signed up for by being born here. My parents signed up for by coming here. That was the American way. And so to me, that's the first question is who gets to decide what the right answers are. But the second thing is what's going on with ESG right now is different. That is to say it goes beyond what was going on with the system. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Sustainable or the socially responsible investing SRI movement. So there, what they were doing was saying, and by the way, when I was a student at Harvard, the endowment at Harvard, you know, some people sixty joke, billion dollars. You know, yeah. some people joke around that Harvard is a giant hedge fund with a college attached sure, to it. Correct. Right. So. What they would do is they would kind of use their capital to divest from Sudan or di- divest from conflict areas and then take a lot of credit for it and issue nice press releases. That was what socially responsible investing was about mostly is divestment. Okay, take the bad sectors. Pick whatever you think is bad. Tobacco, coal, oil, Sudan, cigarette, you know, whatever, gaming. Mm-hmm. Firearms is a big one. Divest. And then hopefully if you divest, that will then cause those companies to change their behavior. What ended up really happening was that we have deep, liquid global capital markets. So if those stock prices go down, for example, or asset prices go down, the inherent worth of the activity, the commercial value of it hasn't changed. That just created an opportunity for somebody else to buy it up instead. And so what ended up happening is the guys who want to issue the press releases end up giving up return. The guys who don't care about the press releases would rather stay anonymous end up being the other side of that trade. They just get to buy it at a lower price. And that's why UT's University of Texas's system has outperformed Harvard's endowment because Harvard got out of fossil fuels while the University of Texas didn't over the course of 2022. Mm -hmm. So what the ESG movement does is one step goes one step further than that. And this is where I'm focused. Okay, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, these are three of the largest financial institutions. They manage about 20 trillion dollars almost as much capital as the U.S. GDP in the hands of three institutions. Mm -hmm. But what they're mostly doing isn't just this socially responsible investing thing through their ESG funds. It's a common misconception. That's a tiny, tiny, tiny part of what they do, like less than 2% or something, okay? Most of what they do is they're actually just providing index funds to the general population, people who think they own the S&P 500, Mm -hmm. who think they own Apple and Nike and, and, you know, whatever you named a company, Exxon, Chevron, et cetera. But the key is they're not divesting through those funds. They're investing in the whole market. In fact, who are the top shareholders of Disney and Paramount Pictures, of Apple and Microsoft, of Exxon and Chevron? It's the same companies. <laughs> Actually, it's the same large shareholders are the institutions that hold these firms. They're using the money of everyday citizens to do it, but they're changing the behaviors of those underlying companies by voting their shares and by advocating for policies in the boardroom that changed the companies themselves. So here it's not divesting from Apple because they didn't do a racial equity audit. It's being invested in Apple and making Apple do a racial equity audit at their company last year that Apple itself did not want to do. Apple's board said, absolutely not. BlackRock and State Street said, "Um, actually, you're going to do it because we're your shareholders and we're the ones that demand it. Now, the funny part is it's not like Larry Fink or BlackRock is the actual shareholder. It's probably most listeners to this program whose money is invested in their funds but don't know that their money is being voted in this direction so that's the key with the the main where the the main action is on the esg debate isn't the divestment game yeah it's the voting game so here's what i want to do i want to go into a couple different things one how has klaus schwab won loyalty of people around the world to believe he knows what's the right thing to do for the future of the world and why are smart people buying into his philosophy He's a founder of European Management Forum, now being whatever, you know, the World Economic Forum. I want to play video, which is very disturbing. I also want to talk to you about what you said regarding Elon Musk when you said, uh, in your view, 
Musk will still have to play by the rules if he wants Twitter to survive. And there's one master he will always have to appease. That master is known as the CCP uh, that both Tim Cook and Elon Musk probably have to bow down to on any given day. So in a certain sense, if you bow down to the same master, maybe your brother's in arms. Now, before we get into this, let me go a quick shout out to our uh, sponsors, um, uh, uh, Gold Co. So a couple things you need to know about Gold Co. is uh, we've been approached by gold companies for the last couple of years by several of them. And I have a very, very close friend of mine who worked for Gold Co. for many years. I called a bunch of people around. I said, so what can you tell me about this company? He says, Patrick, if you're going to buy gold or if you're going to have anybody be the sponsor, this is the company. This has got the most credibility. I said, so let me call another guy. We did research after research after research. Seeing there's a six, they're a six-time Inc. 5000 winner, 2022 company of the year. Billions of people have trusted them to buy the gold through them. Ray Dalio recently bought a bunch of gold. I own a bunch of gold myself, and I've been buying gold for uh, quite some time. Very small percentage. It's a 1% to 2% of uh, uh, assets. It's not something that's 50% or 20%, very small part. But with all the strange things that's going on right now, if you are considering hedging against a weird 2023 and 2024, nobody knows what's going to happen with the economy. A lot of people are predicting a recession, but we don't know how bad it's going to get. If you do want to hedge against it, you may want to call Gold Co. Value 10 viewers could get up to $10,000 in free silver and a free ounce of uh, silver Ronald Reagan coin with a qualified order. Call them today, 855-598-2758. Once again, 855-598-2758. Or you can go to goldco.com forward slash PBD. Once again, goldco.com forward slash PBD. Rob, let's put the link below. So let's get back to my question. So... Can you pull up the video about Klaus Schwab, if you could? If you can make that bigger. I just kind of want the audience to see this. Make it bigger so everybody can see it. So here's the thing before we play it. When you think about the spokesperson for Christianity the last 70 years, you would think Billy Graham. Okay, I've heard him speak multiple times. Uh, God bless his soul. He passed away a couple years ago. Great spokesperson, okay? When you think about a spokesperson who's going around selling you know, why we should buy EVs. Okay, I would say Elon's probably the voice for that, right? We can have a lot of different spokespeople. This is, either their CMO needs to be fired or he just needs to be quiet and kind of have the power behind closed doors. He may be the worst spokesperson for, when you watch this, honestly, you think this is from a movie. Like, did they literally hire this guy? And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, this is not a movie. This is how they market. So if, if some of you guys were afraid about COVID, look how he injects the fear of cyber attack and other things in his method of marketing. So press play. Pay insufficient attention to the frightening scenario of a comprehensive cyber attack, which would bring to a complete halt to the power supply, transportation, hospital services, our society as a whole. The COVID-19 crisis would be seen in this respect as a small disturbance in comparison to a major cyber attack. I mean, I, I, I don't understand. Can I, can I ask you? Yeah, sure. This is not my show, okay? Yeah. So I want to be respectful. Can you put up the Apple 1984 ad? Identical. It's the same music. Yes. You just, it's, 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 like, it's like just identical. Literally. It's the first thing I thought about. <laughs> is that yeah, it's like, the first thing I thought that, about. It, it yeah. straight up is like you wouldn't. That's the, the face. Don't play it. Just that, show the face. That, that looks this, like this, the, this you can't the, use the audio. This is the guy who is 
like that's Klaus Schwab on the screen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so tell me that is not the exact same. But person. think about that yeah. Germany. You think about like, Adolf. It's you not think the look, about it's even 1984. The it's the the message. How is he so convincing weird. people like a Joe Biden to say, "Let me announce my candidacy campaign to be Build Back Better," which he's the Build Back Better guy. So why are people buying into this guy? Why does he have so much influence over people? So the answer comes down to money. Okay. Actually. So it comes down to money. But he doesn't have money. He well, gets money. He doesn't money. have money. No, no, yeah. no, no. no. It, it, it's not even it's not even this man. I mean, as I I got to tell you something. I re, I was asked by the Wall Street Journal to review a book that he wrote what in like early 2020 or 2021, right. a couple years ago. And through reading that book, I get the sense that he's just a sincere individual who has had this passion for 50 years and in his own heart is just one man who has his views. They're views that I deeply disagree with. But he happens to have exercised influence because everyone else with money, 360 degrees surrounding him, had a use for that. Okay, Larry Fink is on the board of the World Economic Forum of Davos. Klaus Schwab doesn't have money, or not in a you know, seriously large-scale way. Larry Fink controls, 20, controls 8 to $10 trillion under the purview of one man. That's probably he, the largest— He was. He was. Larry being who—you're talking about BlackRock, Larry yeah, Fink. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean that, that is— Probably the largest aggregation of capital under one man's authority. No question. In human history, history, more than the Dutch East India Company, okay? And he's in the board of the World Economic Forum of Davos. So what does this accomplish? It is a front. That is what this is. This is a front. And you know what? These things always come in three-letter acronyms, right? ESG, DEI, SRI, Socially Responsible Investing, CSR. My favorite three-letter acronym is the CCP. You look at Klaus Schwab, he elevates the CCP. He talks about the Chinese model of dealing with COVID-19. Not in a way not to do it, but in the way to do it. Right. So, so here's the way this game works, okay? The Black Rocks of the world apply constraints to the West. Emissions caps, what kinds of energy you can and cannot use, what kinds of diversity you must have. They apply that to the West without applying those same constraints in places like China. I'll give you a very specific example, okay? They're pressuring companies like Exxon to adopt scope three emissions caps. That causes companies like Exxon to drop oil projects. Now, a couple years ago, there's an oil project in the Sichuan province of China. Chevron drops it. You might wonder, hey, maybe this is part of the fight against global climate change. Maybe that project isn't proceeding. You'd be wrong. That same project is proceeding just under new ownership. Who's the new ownership? It is PetroChina. Now you take a look at who's one of the larger shareholders of PetroChina. It is none other than BlackRock, the same party who's oh, wow. pressuring firms Can like pull up Exxon and Chevron. Yeah. So, so the interesting thing here is that take it from the left hand and give it to the right. That's Last time I checked, we were supposed to be fighting global climate change. I'm just and seeing yet, a, a three-card Monty going on. Follow exactly. the money. It's and like then the World Economic Forum is this, is this front that gives this, that sort of creates this veneer mm-hmm. of legitimacy when, in fact, because this is a nonprofit global allegiance and organization conceived by this elderly Swiss gentleman, Klaus Schwab, when, in fact, it is just a vehicle for advancing an agenda that impedes the objectives of the West without laying a finger on China or the Chinese economy. Mm. And so the CCP is the most relevant three-letter acronym looking by disease. I'll give you another little mystery here. Why is it part of the global ESG agenda to be hostile 
towards nuclear energy. So the first paradox is why do they shift production to China and they're okay with it? Oh, and by the way, for any climate activists listening to this, I mean, just to give you a fact to think about tonight when you go to bed, methane leakage, a unit of methane is 80 times worse for global warming than carbon dioxide. Okay, people talk about carbon emissions. Well, if you don't actually have a database debate, you can't just talk about carbon. You have to talk about the difference between carbon dioxide, methane, and other forms of carbon. Turns out methane leakage is 80 times worse for global warming than carbon dioxide. Guess where methane leakage is worse? In places like Russia and China. So when you shift production from the U.S. to other parts of the world, it's not just that it's net neutral with woke washing. It's worse than that because you're actually contributing to more methane leakage into the atmosphere than you were even in the U.S. You've done even more harm on your own terms. Even if you subscribe to this crazy religious zealotry, even if you subscribe to that, you have failed on your own terms. So that's the first mystery. Now, I'll give you a second mystery, and then you see the conclusion. The second mystery is why are they hostile to nuclear energy? Because you would think if you were opposed to all this carbon emission stuff, you would be embracing the greatest form of carbon-free large-scale, reliable energy production known to mankind that is nuclear energy. And yet, ESG funds, like Vanguard's ESG fund, systematically by rule, exclude nuclear energy. Now, scratch your head for a second and ask what's going on there. The answer is this whole agenda, the anti-nuclear disposition included, is really not about climate change at all. It is about making the West apologize for its sins of the past to achieve a paradigm of global equity. The problem with nuclear energy is not that it is not good enough. It is that it is too good at solving the supposed energy crisis or clean energy crisis, which means you lose the E, the environmental prong as ESG, as a Trojan horse for the S, the social agenda. And that's really what's going on here is the whole climatism and the World Economic Forum. This is a Each of these is just a front. It's a Trojan horse. It's a vehicle for advancing an equity-driven agenda that the citizenry of most democracies in the West, including the United States, would have never tolerated if you didn't disguise it in the religious veneer of COVIDism or climatism or whatever other secular religion ends up being the vehicle for advancing that. That is what's going on here. Why should the average person – so forget about the guys like uh, – the startup, the entrepreneur. Hey, if you don't have this, you're not going to get the funding because you need the money. Hey, uh, here's the top 10. Can you put up the top 10 highest ESG score companies? Exxon, I think, is number 10 or number 9 on the list. And you got all these uh, uh, 4 out of 10, I want to say, is oil companies. If you yeah, click on that one right there and zoom in uh, to see who the list is. So these are the top 10 ESG. Number, uh, number 12 is Exxon. Can you zoom in a little bit so I can see? It was an excellent. It doesn't even. Excellent is number matter. twelve. It, 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 it's just all garbage. But the, all the reason why I'm showing you this is for the audience. Okay, so Exelon is number twelve. Number eleven is PepsiCo. Ten is Cisco. Keep going. Number nine is Verizon. Eight is Nvidia. Okay, go to seven. Apple, PayPal. Keep going. Five is. Um, uh, click on that right there. Number five is uh, uh, Bank of America. Four is. Uh, uh, keep going. Did we lose it? Oh, you got to do that. Number four is Salesforce. Let's see who three is. Three is Microsoft, who just put $10 billion in ChatGPT. Uh, two, two is, is Intel. Intel. Can we get a drum roll for number one, by number the way? Number one is Alphabet, ah. Google. Interesting. Google. So they're number one. So here's number the thing. So, so to the average person you know, that's watching this, to the business people, number one is Alphabet. Tesla, who has done more uh, uh, than a lot of these guys can argue because he's actually tried to make an impact. And... Uh, uh, they're not even in the top 12. 
Okay, and then even on the SMP, I think the score wasn't uh, sufficient enough where he was removed from it. He got criticized for it. Can you pull up the tweet that Elon Musk has on what he said about it? I think Elon has a tweet about ESG. Uh, I sent you as well, just so uh, 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 right there. Yeah, Exxon is rated top 10 best uh, in the world for environment, social, and governance by S&P 500, while Tesla didn't even make the list. ESG is a scam. It has weaponized by phony social justice warriors. Okay, guys like him, this doesn't help him. Startup guys coming up, they want to raise capital. No, your score isn't good. We're not going to give you $100 million or $200 million, $300 million. The average guy that's got a job making 82 grand years, like, come on, Vivek. You want me to? I already have so many different issues. I'm trying to worry about who's going to run for office. I want to know whether you know the Joe Burrow from Cincinnati is going to win the Super Bowl or not. I'm still celebrating Messi won the World Cup while he's the greatest of all time. You want me to add another acronym to my list of worrying about ESG? Why should I care? What would you say to that? So it's a good question. Maybe you shouldn't care. And here's here's a good case for not caring. If you are fine with your own money being used to advance a climate agenda or a racial equity agenda, if you are fine with using your dollars to tell Apple that they have to adopt a racial equity hiring system that they don't want to adopt or that that oil companies should produce less oil, even if that means higher prices at the pump, there's no problem with this because that's what a good number of people would want to do with their own money. Turns out, though, most Americans don't want to advance that agenda with their own money, their hard-earned life savings, their 401k accounts, their retirement accounts, their brokerage accounts. They don't want that. Well, it turns out the rude surprise is, guess what? Your money is being used to advance those agendas anyway. So you think you go to the ballot box and vote every November? That's what you said people are concerned about? Guess what? I got news for you. You're already voting every day without your knowledge, with your own hard-earned dollars to do it, for policies that undermine the very objectives that you think you're voting for when you pull that lever at the ballot box. And so they're making a farce out of your vote. That's just the first thing. So now you go to the gas pump, and you're paying $5 gas You know, last summer. On one hand, you are using your 401k account to cause oil companies to produce less oil, which causes gas prices to go up. Yet with the other hand, you're also paying $5 gas. So you're left holding the bag both ways while some client in China gets to invest in a Chinese BlackRock fund that gets to own PetroChina, which is buying up some of the projects on the other side. So the question is, if you are willing to sacrifice investment return in your dollars and your hard-earned savings to advance a one-dimensional vision of how to solve climate change or address systemic racism through quota systems or whatever, then there's no problem for you. You need not worry about this. In fact, I have good news for you. That's exactly what's happening with your money. If you did not want to advance those agendas with your own hard-earned dollars, I have bad news for you. Your money is probably being used to advance those agendas anyway. And so on one hand, you didn't get that promotion at work because we don't have meritocratic hiring systems at many companies anymore because of the S prong of the ESG movement. On the other hand, the 5% that you put away into your 401k account your money was actually used to create that very situation. So mm-hmm. if that bothers you, then be bothered. And if not, it's Leave cool. Leave it alone. Can I yeah. ask a follow-up with that? I like what you said initially when you said, listen, you know, rather than just kind of harping about the problem, I actually developed something more of a solution. The name of your yeah. company. Well, Strive. Strive. Respect. We'll get to that. But I want to kind of touch on the, a- the average person because I have conversations with the average person, you know, average people about saving money and investing money. 
And it is a heavy task to ask them to start a 401k and to even know what the S&P 500 is and take out an index fund and take out 10% of your paycheck. So like it's what half of Americans don't even invest, period. Yep. Right. And then we can we can have a whole number conversation of how many Americans fill up their gas tank. But. When you get into S and P five hundred, you're investing in these five hundred companies and the, the you know the large cap companies. Five, you 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 see people's mind being like, all right, what the hell's an S and P five hundred? What's this? What's this? And now we're getting so far down the rabbit hole of investing and the nuance. Well, it's actually BlackRock that actually owns the fund that's managing the money, and that's who you're investing your four hundred one k with. And by the way, the shareholders are doing this and that, and they're they, you know the social credits. And like you go down, and it's like I'm just as an investor, I'm like. Dude, I just want to have a 401k and 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 make a return. So for the to Pat's question, so it's such a nuanced conversation because I'm really hearing this for the first time. Like because you were in the inner plumbing, the mechanics sure, of sure. this, you're seeing this. So it's like, on one hand, to his question, why should the average investor care? I get it, but what can they even do about it? They're not at shareholder meetings. They're not in the right. you know in there. So it's like, even if someone hears this and reads the book. It's like, all right, I'm with you, Vivek. What's up? It's like, no, just keep investing in your 401k. Best of luck. Well, I mean, that's why I found it Strive, right? right? So, I mean, it's it's funny. Now I've got this company. It sounds like, you know, I'm saying all this because that could mean that you could, you know, do business yeah. with our company. It's actually the other way around. No, no, I actually but, wholeheartedly think that you actually have a point here. You've yes. got to you got to fill that void because people didn't have a choice. I'll just tell you a story though. I actually, so on my flight down here today, I was you know writing a chapter in my next book. Is going to be coming out it's going to be about a lot of the same stuff you're really writing these books buddy you're I like, doing I like it. writing actually it turns <laughs> clearly out, it turns out i i uh, I, I discovered i was doing biotech for yeah. you know seven years as a ceo and seven years as an investor before that i didn't know i was going to be this uh i was going to love you're an writing author books now. this much now now i'm kind of wearing this hat as an author but anyway the the story i was writing in in the chapter i was working on today was actually about frederick Douglass in this country so you know frederick Douglass, obviously of course abolitionist so one of my one of my favorite stories about frederick Douglass was that he actually so he was lent out as a slave so not only did he work the family that owned him they loaned him out to be able to get extra income or curry favor with neighbors and so one day he was learning he was he was doing work for the neighbor but they actually the neighbors took quite a liking to him so the mother figure of that family decided she wanted to teach him how to read. She did that while her husband was at work. One day he came home from work early. He found her teaching him how to read. He was livid because he said, a man with knowledge is not fit to be a slave. Mm -hmm. So the funny part is Frederick Douglass may not have actually probably did not want to be learning how to read. He was just a kid. Most kids don't like to be sat down and taught how to read either. He's no different than other kids. But he heard that. He knew how much... They did not want him to know how to read, and he thought, okay, look, that's probably pretty important for me to figure out. That changed his life. He then started asking other kids as they were coming home, the white boys who were able, actually allowed to go to school, he would pick up little bits and pieces of knowledge, pieced enough together how to read. Once he knew how to read, he became an autodidact, a self-taught guy, one of the great figures in American history. So why did I bring that up? There was actually a rule change this year. The Biden administration— tries to weave ESG into retirement plans. So they changed the rules this year, the federal rule governing retirement plans. It's a boring law called ERISA. Okay. What they said was, actually now these fund managers can take social benefits, what they call collateral benefits other than investment return into account before they weren't allowed to. Now, in the initial rule, what they said was you had to disclose that prominently, that you had to tell the investor, the mom, the pop, the doctor, the nurse that, hey, I'm not just investing for maximizing your financial return, but I'm also advancing these other objectives. 
But in the final rule that they actually passed, that disappeared because they said that if you do disclose it, that's going to have a chilling effect. It's going to stop people from using these ESG factors. Same thing as Frederick Douglass, right? Don't tell them because if you do tell them, then they're going to be empowered to make decisions. So even if these issues bore you before, let me tell you, they are purposefully trying to keep you from seeing it. Just like that father figure in that family wanted to purposely make sure that Frederick Douglass did not know how to read because a man with knowledge is not fit to be a slave. Well, you know what they told slaves back then? They said, you know what, sit down, shut up, and do as you're told. I think we live in a moment in American history where that's what many Americans are told. Sit down, shut up, and do what you're told. And you know what? At a certain point in time, you might even get used to it. That then becomes the new norm to sit down, shut up, and do as you're told without recognizing that your own dollars that you put your hardworking days into are sacrificed to advance somebody else's social agenda that would make your blood boil if you actually knew what was going on. And so maybe closing your eyes makes yourself feel better. But once you open your eyes, that's when you're actually empowered to act with your own dollars. And so I hope there are tons of other competitors offering other options that allow people to invest in the market and derive a financial return without having to subsidize these progressive one-sided causes. I mean, today they're progressive. Tomorrow they could be conservative for all I know, but subsidize causes that they disagree with. But it's not going to happen either if there are no market alternatives, which is why I started one, but it's also not going to happen if if all individuals are just simply apathetic, okay? You would have never had emancipation in this country if a bunch of people were just apathetic about it. Well, I, I'm not use, and, I, and I'm using an analogy. I'm not saying that this is the same thing, of course, as slavery in the United States, but I'm doing it to address your question of why mm-hmm. should people care. If you've been lulled into submission and you're okay with that, in a certain sense, you are just a psychologically, in a psychological sense, a slave of the people who enforce those agendas onto you using your labor in this case, the dollar you earn from your labor as the weapon to enforce that agenda on you. Here's a question for you. So what is, uh, uh, so, you know, hey, we have to make America equal to everybody else, and this is kind of why they're doing what they're doing, to pay for the sins of the past, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, fine. Let's say they succeed, okay? Say they succeed, and America falls as a great empire, and it's no longer what it is, and... Too many politicians come in that are bought uh, on the back end, whether it's from China or whoever else. They keep saying, yeah, it's okay, let it go. Yeah, it's good, it's okay. And every single term, two to four years, the folks who support ESG, World Economic Forum, China makes a little bit more progress, a little bit more progress, a little bit more progress, a little bit more progress. And then also one day you wake up and he says it's too late. Let's say we get to the phase of it is too late. So if Klaus Schwab just sold the nightmare, right, he sold the nightmare of, you think COVID is bad? Let me tell you what's going to happen next with cyber attack. And- or climate change or fill in the yeah, gap. You but, know, it's a catastrophe. He's predicting a cyber attack. And a lot of times, if you remember when many of these billionaires predicted a pandemic, they knew, hey, pandemic is coming. Like, when, how the hell did you know that a pandemic was coming? Such perfect timing. I think Jeb Bush was one. I think Gates was one. A lot of people predicted the pandemic well, some that of their was going to be was, coming up. You know, taxpayer money yeah. being funded the virus that became the backbone of that pandemic. So what if these guys yeah. succeed? What happens to like America? That, right? What if these, these guys succeed? What happens to America 10, 20, 30 years from now? Yeah, so to me, America is more than just a place. Right? It is an idea. It's an idea that brought together a divided, polyglot group of people 250 years ago in this country. By definition, that idea is gone in the scenario you just described. Okay, you no longer live in a world where you can achieve what you want with your own hard work and commitment and dedication. That is part of the American idea. 
by definition in that world, in that worldview, that's gone because you are now an agent on the tectonic plates of group identity, on achieving a social goal that goes beyond you as an individual. That vision's gone. Now, you could say, so what? What if America's gone? You know, I think that sometimes we debate whether the fall of the American experiment is like the phase of, that we were in with the fall of Rome. Mm-hmm. Actually, one of the things I say in this book is we got to first ask the question, we'd be so lucky to be Rome. Maybe we're Carthage, because so far we've been around for less time than either Rome or Carthage, so who are we to call ourselves Rome? But to me, I think it's, it's the less of a loss of a particular geographic space and the idea that animates that geographic space, Okay. We, we celebrate our diversity, you, you, and you, you know, and me, we look different from each other. We're in the same room. And great, we could say we have a little, a diverse conversation going on today. All we need is a woman and someone with, you know, one, one of the four of us being of some different sexual orientation. We have yeah, a we got to get crowd. a trans person. Exactly. Sure. But, so, so, you know, and, and, and make sure it's a different shade of melanin, and we can all celebrate our diversity. Well, the problem is our diversity stops being a beautiful thing. It starts becoming meaningless, if there's nothing greater that binds us together across that diversity. With that, we're literally nothing more than a group of higher mammals with different skin tones babbling on in a given room. It's not beautiful. It's a nothing. If there's not, no commonality across that diversity. You're saying it's being diverse for the sake of being diverse. It's meaningless. Right. Is meaningless. There's no common lineage right there. There's no, yeah, nothing binding us together. Yeah, but against the backdrop of something common that binds you together, that is what makes diversity beautiful. Right. The beauty you see comes against the backdrop of a, an intuition, a human thought, that against the backdrop of having so much in common, imagine how different we can all look and how different we can all feel and how different we can all pers- differently we can all pursue our dreams against the backdrop of that commonality. But over the last 10 years... We've gotten to a place where we're celebrating all the colors on the rainbow and and everywhere in between, forgetting that this was only beautiful if there was some commonality. You ask most people today, ask most people our age or younger, what does it mean to be American in the year 2023? I think most people don't have a good answer to that question. I think that we have an opportunity. It's not long enough, right? We call it the American dream for a reason. Yeah, I kind of like the analogy of when you wake up from a dream, you still remember it a little bit. You remember how it felt. But long enough, you wait, you forget the whole thing. Okay, that's the phase we're in right now. And I think, you know, we, we woke up. You could call it woke culture, whatever it is. Right. We woke up from the dream. But I, don't, I still think we remember how it felt. And so that's the zone we're in. I think if we keep going the way we are, we've forgotten it. And once you forget the dream, the country's gone. I think this but is what. But I think what, we can still go back to it. I think this is. I think you always tell the story about when you were in the army, and you're an Iranian guy, and there's a white guy, there's a black guy, and there's a Latino guy, and, and you were busting each other's balls, and it was all, it was, it was, you know, hey, this black guy, so many stories, busting balls, locker room talk, but there was a common goal. We're Americans. We're serving in the army. Common purpose. Yeah. There was a common purpose. I mean, you can. I'll, I'll let you tell your story, but that's kind of what this, this is making me think of. Is because it wasn't just like, all right, we got the black guy, we got the Asian guy, we got the gay guy. We got. It's like no. The the purpose was we're we're serving our country. You know what is happening, though. Here's what's happening. So think about uh, 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 Vivek's story. Okay, uh, builds a company, multi billion dollar company. He's done well for himself. Thirty six years old. You're thirty seven now, but thirty at thirty six, thirty five and a half years old. He says, I'm going to go write a book, and I'm going to go speak on this, and I'm going to step away from this. 
I remember one time I'm in uh, uh, Chatsworth, and there was this one lady's face that was on all the buses. Not bus, uh, what do you call it? Uh, bus stops. Bus stops. And all of a sudden, it all disappeared. She was there for 20 years. One day, it disappeared. I said, well, how come? So one day, I run into her at Wood Ranch restaurant. I said, we, I haven't seen your face for months. What happened? She says, one day, my husband and I, she's sitting with her husband and her two kids. My husband and I sat down and said, I'm making $200,000 per year. Taxes right now in California are this. We're keeping around 90 of it at the end of the day, 100 of it. It's just not worth me working anymore. I decided to stay home. My husband's salary is uh, plenty. We downsized. We're just living a regular life. Meaning she decided to dramatically change her life and step down because the incentive of working hard no longer made sense. Now flip that. He's the opposite. The opposite is where guys who are worth $300 billion, are willing to put their $300 billion net worth on pause to lose $200 billion, become the first person to do it just to buy a company called Twitter that you pay too much money for so you can fight for freedom of speech? What the hell are you doing? Economically, it doesn't make sense. Economically, he's still in his prime. You can still go 20 more years and build a few more businesses. Do what? Why is he stepping away to write a book, right? So what is happening today, my opinion, and I want to go to see your perspective on Elon because you have a different perspective on Elon, is I think uh, uh, this manipulation, this gaslighting, this bullying is giving birth to certain people that are saying, you know what, I'm done. Uh, I, I got plenty of money. I'm getting in the game. You guys are doing too much. I'm going to come and expose the living shit out of you, and it's not going to be pretty. And those guys are now finding each other. Okay, just like complainers always find each other, crap magnets always find each other in a company environment. You always notice seven people go to lunch together. If three of them are complainers, the other four are also complainers. They just found each other. If you see five people, two of them are studs, go to lunch. The other three are also studs because they find each other. These fighters are now finding each other saying, hey, what do you got going on? Let me get your message out. Let me get your message out. What do you got? And then, okay, now there's some power. So Network equals net worth. Yep. That's how I process 